Hey, Scott Walker here back on our podcast, You Can't Recall Courage. And I'm really excited this week because I've got a friend and fellow cheesehead on with us today, the former Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives, Paul Ryan. Thanks for joining us. Hey, uh, great to be with you, Scott. Uh, I am just down the road in Janesville to your Pewaukee and uh, beautiful day outside today. It's like a Chamber of Commerce day here in Wisconsin, although I guess I should qualify that anywhere except if you're going to Madison, because yeah. obviously the last few days have been filled with just all sorts of chaos, as we've seen elsewhere across the country. I don't want to just talk about that today, although we can certainly talk about that. But, but uh, you know, I was thinking about this, Paul. You and I obviously came of age when Ronald Reagan was the president. We're, we're, uh, we come of age during the 80s. I saw a meme the other day that was... Uh, of the movie back to the future and uh, the meme said uh, is him saying uh, hey marty whatever you do uh, don't stop in 2020 and uh, <laughs> while that was funny obviously with uh, not just the elections but with coronavirus uh, with the obviously horrific uh, incident in minneapolis with george floyd with legitimate protests but then with the hijacking of that of all the other uh, riots and everything else going on this is just a remarkable, remarkable year uh, on both the good and the bad. But I still, I don't know about you, Paul, but I'm, I'm still optimistic enough in the American people, beyond just even political leaders, that if we can get settled down, we can get this economy back up and going again, and hopefully, um, in, in a way, restart not only the economy, but in a way that helps everyone in every community of every race and every background. And I know that's something you've talked about uh, for quite some time. Maybe share your thoughts on, on that and, and we'll go from there. Yeah. So I, I share your, your, your cautious optimism is I guess how I would just say it. It has been just an, an amazing year in that it's just been so much has been thrown at the world, at, at the American people, at the country, uh, incredible amount. Um, we are such a resilient country. Our institutions are still strong. And I think we'll get out of this moment all the stronger for it um, in the future. Um, you're right. Uh, I came of age as you did. Uh, you and I have a very similar upbringing. And um, my mentor, uh, in addition to you know liking Ronald Reagan quite a bit, I serve on the board of the Reagan Library, um, was Jack Kemp. And uh, Jack was really my intellectual mentor, my personal mentor. I worked for him. And um, what I do now in my post-speakership, um, my vocational um, um, endeavors, is I work on the issue of upper mobility and poverty. And uh, my foundation, the American Idea Foundation, is specifically built on um, fighting poverty at its core, attacking it at root causes, and re-instilling the sense of upper mobility and opportunity for everybody in America. Um, the George Floyd murder was a horrendous spectacle that I think served to awaken so many people, open so many hearts, pull the scales off so many eyes, so that people really did see there really is a problem. There really is systemic racism. And those protests, um, all of those valid and legitimate protests, um, I think it's up to us as citizens and, and to policymakers to make sure that those very legitimate protests, this real sentiment in this country to really address this and, and make this time different with respect to civic response, we gotta make sure that that, that that wins the day and not these horrible riots, this looting, these these ripping down of abolitionist statutes in Madison and in 
Molotov cocktailing police stations and all of that kind of stuff. We've got to make sure that we as citizens and, as, and, and people as policymakers get the right lesson out of this. And so what I work on at my foundation, and I do this as a, as a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, and I work at Notre Dame on these issues, is let's address these root cause problems. Let's, let's address the lack of opportunity or the inequality of opportunity. Let's address the, the real problems that are there. And so I spend a lot of my time working on that, whether it's the things that I work on to make sure that the laws we recently passed are fully executed, like the Evidence Act. I recently sent a letter to the Justice Department saying you now have new tools under the Evidence Act to actually address policing reform, to actually measure evidence and effectiveness of, of policing um, protocols and activities. Um, I think there's so much we can do in the area of opportunity zones, impact bonds, in communities to address these needs um, now that there is hopefully a, a long time reawakened citizenry to these injustices and to the inequality of opportunity that in our free society, in our free enterprise system is the best possible tool to fix and, and, and heal these wounds. So that's kind of stuff I work on a lot and I'm actually really optimistic and, and, and interested and excited about getting on with this work because there's such a great need and that's obvious today. Oh, there really is. I, I was uh, I was watching. You mentioned Jack Kemp. Uh, I was watching a, a clip on YouTube a couple of days ago, and it was just one heartwarming to, to just hear his voice again. But to uh, it was a panel. It was after he had been the secretary of health and urban development uh, under President Bush and obviously after his uh, illustrious career uh, in the United States House of Representatives. But uh, he talked in particular very personally uh, it was asked a question that dealt with race about his time in the NFL as a quarterback and just as a player and, and talked about how he, he, you know, looking back was frustrated that at the time he played um, there were black athletes, but they were restricted, uh, not necessarily by policy, but just was commonplace that uh, good black athletes were not uh, playing quarterback. They weren't coaching. They, they weren't uh, in the, in the front office and he pointed out that that you know, obviously that was not a good thing, and that over time that that changed, and uh, the sport and, and America and the world are that much better off for it. And he talked about the changes not only in the NFL but in sports and in entertainment, and uh, and said the one area that still was lacking he felt then, and I think arguably today, was uh, in entrepreneurship. That right. Uh, uh, that, and that's really the heart of uh, a good chunk of what you're talking about is is trying to figure out how do we how do we create more uh, people in this case more people of color who have not just equal opportunity but who have the connections have the support have the focus on not just being entrepreneurs to put it really directly to open their own businesses to be small right. business owners to start up and create their own ideas and to grow those businesses something bigger and better and to have role models and mentors and, and connections. Uh, uh, a lot of this over time is, is you know, we both came from humble uh, starts and in, in relatively sm small areas. Uh, although I, I laughed years ago when somebody called Janesville small town, your, your hometown, because <laughs> I came from Delavan and we went there for Friday nights because you had a Shakey's and a, and a mall. Uh, but, but relative to a lot of larger cities across the country, still small towns. But it was about making connections and having good mentors and, uh, you know, that's one of the things we have to work harder on. And we can do that. The, uh, and, and this may be one of those great opportunities to put an even greater focus on that going forward. 
Yeah, I think that's right. By the way, our shakies is gone, but I was at the mall just yesterday. <laughs> so the mall's still there, but the shakies is long gone. Um, but uh, I looked at things we did in the last session of Congress that I really think um, uh, not enough people have really paid attention to that I think could bring a, a great potential to this very issue. Jack used to always say you can't have capitalism without capital and you can't have black entrepreneurship um, and businesses start up without capital. And this is what I think Opportunity Zones really um, um, have a great uh, opportunity to doing. Um, one of the things we're working on our foundation is making sure that all the opportunity funds that are being raised and deployed in the country mind the mission, which is when we wrote this bill, we put it, it was Tim Scott's bill we put in um, the tax bill in 2017. When we wrote this bill and put it in the tax law, um, I remember talking to um, the, the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee that evening, Tim Kevin Brady, when we were doing this, saying we got to make sure that this that this is this goes the right way, and that this is um, a tool of revitalization, not regentrification. And so, one of the things we work on at, at the American Idea Foundation is to make sure that all this capital that is going to go into these economically depressed areas, whether it's in Appalachia and rural America or in inner cities, um, actually revitalizes and empowers the people who are there right now and not displaces them through gentrification policies. So because we have all this capital that is being raised and deployed, what we want to make sure now is that it, it meets the mission, which was to revitalize, to help build paths to entrepreneurship for people to own and start businesses, to get economic growth and opportunity, equality of opportunity spread into these communities. And I really am bullish on this law. I'm really bullish on the fact that there are so many new tools that can now be deployed to actually bring that that sense of opportunity. The, the biggest concern I've had in society lately is that so many people just don't think the American idea is there for them anymore. You know, the, yeah. the idea that the condition of your birth doesn't determine the outcome of your life. You can make it in this country if you just work hard, you play by the rules. And oh, by the way, that you, your kids will be better off than you will. There are so many people in, in this country who do not see that or believe that anymore. And that to me is a real, real problem. And our generation, it's our biggest test of our generation, which is whether or not we continue this tradition or it's severed. And so I think we have new tools and this is basically what we're focused on, making sure that we do this. And, and I'm, I really am convinced the work I do at Notre Dame at the Laboratory for Economic Opportunity, which is getting economists to work with charities to use random clinical trials and evidence and data and analytics to basically make sure that the, our, our ways of fighting poverty are actually effective, are actually working. They're incorporating the right principles and incentives. And we actually can make sure that, that, that the effort we put through government and philanthropy and, and enterprise actually work to really bring people up and help people bring themselves out of poverty and create a sense of upward mobility and, and create a sense that the American idea is alive and well, and it's there for everyone. Um, I think the George Floyd murder helped a lot of Americans realize that's just not true. And we better double our efforts to make sure that it, it becomes true. Absolutely. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more. Uh, thanks for joining us. Scott Walker here on You Can't Recall Courage, our podcast. Thanks so much for listening in. And boy, I'm just couldn't be more thrilled to have my friend Paul Ryan with us here today. We were talking about the American idea and the American dream and how for a lot of folks, uh, not, not just in the case of like George Floyd, but what it brought to, to the table, the hearing from folks, including uh, I was listening uh, this week, as I'm sure you were, Paul and others, 
uh, to our mutual friend, uh, Senator Tim Scott, on the floor of the U.S. Senate. And, and obviously he's talked before. He's been working on this long before uh, the tragedy in Minneapolis uh, on police reform, as well as other key issues. Uh, but And he talked uh, freely. He's talked before about this, too, about uh, being an African-American man that he's been pulled over before. I've had yeah. many of the folks, not just friends, but many of the folks who worked in my cabinet, worked a part of my team. I'm sure that's true with the folks that you work with, Paul, talk about those stories. And, and obviously that's that's uh, it raises a whole new level of consciousness to concerns, not just about uh, police brutality, but just to race in our nation and, and what we've got to overcome. And I've always felt, uh, you know, it goes back to the Bible. If uh, the ultimate thing is if we have respect for each other, if we love one another uh, in everything we do, that, 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 that ultimately triumphs. But I, I was particularly frustrated though um, in reaction to Senator Scott, um, not him, but the reaction he got from his colleagues on the other side of the aisle. I mean, yeah, he laid out, I thought a very comprehensive plan. Uh, in fact, I talked to him last week because uh, I mentioned one of the things we did here in Wisconsin was years ago. I signed a law that required uh, an independent, excuse me, independent review anytime there was a officer-related death. Uh, I gave him some other suggestions. He's been, like I said, working for years uh, and really had a comprehensive package. Came back after one day of floor debate where they. Uh, the Democrats brought up a number of objections and he systematically went through and offered an amendment to address them and they still refused to vote. And I thought particularly his words were powerful because it, it made me think, and I know you've experienced this on other issues in the past, where it seemed like the opposing party was more interested in using this as a campaign issue than, than in actually providing uh, and enacting any meaningful reforms. And I hope that's not constant uh, in the future, but but you've seen it before, particularly in election years. It's just really, really frustrating, and, and not only when the opposing party does that, but when many in the media uh, seem to give them cover at a time when I think Americans not only are asking for, but deserve uh, to have real uh, answers to some of the, the issues related to George Floyd's death. Yeah, I think that's right. And I I have seen this many times, and, and when you get really close to an election like this, partisanship typically prevails and takes over. It's not a good thing, but it's, but it's obviously happening. And I think it would be a wonderful sense of healing if we could actually address these things. And Tim, Tim's a good friend of mine as well, and he and I have spoken about these issues over the years. And I think he's, he's, he's providing tremendous leadership. Not only that, he's also said he's, he's got a very much an open mind, and they were going to have an open amendment uh, strategy, which on the Senate floor, by the way, doesn't typically happen. And so the fact that they have stymied the, any effort to really get a bill off the floor or even to fashion a compromise just leads you to conclude that this is this is, you know, sort of election year partisanship and that they're they've chosen not to come to resolution and, and get something done for the country, which I think would be a really healing moment right now, um, but instead hold it over for for political reasons. I think that's what this looks like. Uh, it's hard to conclude otherwise. And so I think it's really unfortunate. All the same, you know, we as citizens, as people, um, as policymakers, we don't have to wait around for Congress to do something. We can do it ourselves. You know, we can go in our own activities with our own um, with our own things we do in our lives, whether it's through the charities we work at or the businesses or the hiring we make. All of those things, we can take it upon ourselves as citizens to be better, better selves and to help heal our communities. And I think that that's something that we should all be focused on instead of waiting for Chuck Schumer to drop a filibuster or something like that. 
Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that. Well, and, and thinking of things that are happening in Washington that aren't necessarily even just partisan. Um, I, I know several months ago when we first saw the first wave of reaction to the coronavirus, and, and I get things like the, the, the Paycheck Protection uh, Program that that was necessarily because much like a takings or a property rights issue, the, the government at all levels had an impact on closing businesses down. So things like that made sense. But so many of the other things that have been put in, not only the CARES Act, but particularly what Speaker Pelosi's $3 trillion plan, yeah. I think had something like $75 million in for testing and, and things related to that. And almost all the rest was for bailing out failed state and local governments and all sorts of other excessive spending. I went back and looked. That $3 trillion in her one bill um, was, uh, I think she dubbed it the Heroes Act. I, I would call it the Zeros Act. They took you know about every left-wing idea and just added zeros to it. But that $3 trillion was more than the entire federal debt was uh, the year she first took office. And that's an issue maybe more exacerbated by those on the left. But, but unfortunately, even some of our friends on the right haven't paid a whole lot of attention to the, the debt, which is now over 26 trillion and uh, the ongoing deficit issue. Is there, is there any hope on the horizon that uh, whether it be in Washington or even the States that we, we might get some somewhere with raining things in you obviously all the way back to your original plans had ideas for this, but uh, do you see any yeah. hope on the horizon? I, I do. I think the outcome of the election is going to really determine that. Look, I know Nancy very, very well. I've, you know, obviously negotiated with her for four years as speaker when she was the minority leader. Uh, Nancy runs a coalition government, and her coalition is a coalition of progressives. And so Nancy is giving her coalition of progressives, which are the people that she needs to vote for her for speaker, everything they want in this one bill. So it really is just a grab bag wish list of progressive wants uh, in a $3 trillion bill, which really resembles little um, like any kind of economic um, need bill, any kind of economic growth bill. Um, I am proud of my former colleagues for the first phase, you know, one, two, and three, and phase 3.5. I think they did a very good job, frankly, of addressing the crisis in a very short period of time. And yes, the, the increase in the deficit this year is $3.8 trillion alone just this year. But just to your point, Scott, when the government imposes an economic lockdown, understandably so for, for health reasons because of a global pandemic, the government basically put the economy in a coma. So the government did have a, a, a responsibility to uh, try and arrest the drop of the economy. I kind of experienced similar, a similar moment, not as big as this moment, but a similar moment in the 2008 meltdown. I remember spending, you know, every two or three times a day, I was on the phone with, with Ben Bernanke and, John, and, and Hank Paulson in those days when we did the response. I think the government stepped up big um, at the end of the day, the Fed balance sheet is going to be something like $7 trillion. Um, the, the FISC, meaning the fiscal balance sheets, like I said, a $3.8 trillion deficit increase. But what that did by having the PPP program, the unemployment, and the exchange stabilization fund, which is the Federal Reserve um, liquidity in the system, they basically stopped a Great Depression. They kept as many people as possible attached to their jobs, even though their businesses were, were languishing so that when the economy turns back on and starts to normalize, you're going to have businesses that still exist because they didn't go bankrupt and people still attached to those businesses so that they can go quickly back to work because they already have a job. That, that 
effort that phase three, phase 3.5 really did, in my opinion, make the difference between a Great Depression or a deep recession. And they brought the bottom up of the economy. They, they suspended the drop of the economy. We still have 20 million people unemployed. We still are going to have a horrible second quarter. But it looks like the third quarter is going to pull up and we're going to have north of 5% growth in the third quarter and we're going to come back. So we're in the bottom of it right now. But because of the government's response, and, and, I, and I want to give credit to everybody in Congress who came together to do this with the president, they basically arrested a, a bottoming out of the economy. Um, but to your point, Scott, the deficit effects are horrendous. The real answer, in my opinion, is not just horrible tax policy, policy that makes it impossible to get you know, the economy going again. You have to engage in entitlement reform you know, once and for all. And I'm proud of the fact that when I was chairman of the Budget Committee, the the first four years of our majority, I passed on the floor a balanced budget and not just a, a, a call to balance the budget, but an actual budget, a plan that balanced the budget and paid off the debt. And then the subsequent budget chairs, Tom Price and Diane Black did the same thing. So for all of the eight years we were in the majority, each term of Congress, the House Republicans passed a budget plan to balance the budget and actually pay off the debt. Now, regrettably, that never got off the Senate floor. And that clearly never got into the president's on the president's desk. Obviously, with Obama, we weren't going to have a chance. But with Trump, we could never even get it past the Senate onto the president's desk. But we made some pretty good progress. I think at the end of the day, the best way to get at this issue in this very polarizing time, and it's something that I never liked doing before, is a commission. Uh, I served on Bowl Simpson. It was the wrong way to organize a commission because it could be quickly ignored as it was. And I had my own problems with the commission's results. But the best commission I saw in my lifetime was the Greenspan Social Security Commission, which was a fast track commission, which basically could not be filibustered or ignored, had to be voted on up or down, just like we do base closings. And so I think that kind of a debt commission on entitlements, which are basically because baby boomers are retiring and we're not prepared for them, is the only real way to get a handle on the big debt that's coming in the future. And if we can get our debt under control, then a few other fixes to some of our bigger problems, and there's no stop in America in the 21st century. But the debt is what will undo us as a great power in the 21st century if we don't get a handle on our debt. Yeah, absolutely. One last quick question. You've been so generous with your time. Here we are in Wisconsin, battleground state. Uh, this past week, you had both the vice president and the president in. Uh, we just had a big uh, special election uh, to replace Sean Duffy with Tom Tiffany. Uh, winning at the same time that Garcia won out in California. Two good signs uh, for House Republicans going into the fall. So you've got uh, at least uh, some good momentum uh, with House Republicans, some tough, tough races for U.S. Senate, and obviously battleground states like Wisconsin for the presidency. Where do you think things end up come November? Yeah, I I spend a lot of my my political time I spend basically with the NRCC, which is the House um, Republican re-election arm. And obviously I'm doing some work with some Senate U.S. Senate candidates. Um, I, like you, I'm sure, uh, did some Zoom campaigning for Tom Tiffany uh, yeah. in, in northern Wisconsin, which was, you know, I've never done that before. That was interesting. I'm, I'm doing Zoom campaigning and Zoom fundraisers for these people. Um, but but looking at Tiffany's numbers, looking at the Garcia race, and then looking across the map, I really do think we're going to pick up seats in the House. Um, there are a good half dozen seats that we really should have that we lost, um, some of which were flukes that I think we'll get back. So I think we're gonna get um, add seats to the House. Getting the majority is a really tall order. Um, that's more gonna be determined on the presidential election, but 
I think we're going to pick up seats in the House. Um, obviously, I'm very worried about keeping our majority in the United States Senate. Um, but I see fresh signs of improvement. Uh, the Cory Gardner race, which people left for dead, I think Cory's got a real good fighting chance of hanging on in Colorado. Um, I think Tillis is going to win North Carolina. I think Steve Daines and Johnny Ernst are going to have tough races, but I think they're doing really well. Never count Susan Collins out in Maine. Um, so I think in Martha's going to over there in, in Arizona. But at the end of the day, I, I, I feel like we'll keep our Senate majority. That's going to be a real hard one um, here in Wisconsin. Um, as you well know, um, the polls are not good, uh, but we're in the we're in the low point of it. The Marquette poll, which I think Marquette polls are pretty good polls. It's a registered voter poll, not a likely voter poll, but they're pretty good polls. And it's not looking real good for us, for Republicans. But again, we're in the worst part of the economy. We're in where we knew we would be in the bottom of the economy. But in the third quarter, with projections from the Federal Reserve and the CBO all showing north of 5% growth, with a stronger growing economy come October, November, you know, I think I think the polls will change. My guess is we're going to have seven October surprises between now and October anyway. That's, <laughs> that's the kind of year we're having. Yeah. So yeah. I think these polls right now are, are just not really something to look at, to, to bank on. Um, they're not what we want to be, that's for sure, as Republicans. But but I do think we'll pick up seats in the House and I feel better today about our Senate races than I did just say three or four weeks ago. Well, I, I think you're right. A lot of work to be done between now and then, particularly in the economy, as well as on the campaigns. You have been so good to give me so much time here today. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, a big thanks to our special guest, my friend, the former Speaker of the House of Representatives and a, a number one cheesehead, Paul Ryan. Thanks for joining us. I'm Wisconsin. Go Packers. Great being with you, Scott. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks, Paul. Everybody else, thanks for joining us today. Keep fighting for freedom.